This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 194. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lamariasha. And today we are releasing a previous Patreon bonus podcast publicly for all your listeners because Nagata Kabi's newest book, My Wandering Warrior Existence, is out. We recorded an episode on that, but we're going to be publishing that next week. But before that, we want to catch up everyone on our public feed, on our previous podcast, on our previous book, on My Alcoholic Escape from Reality, which we discussed with Erica Friedman, founder of Akazu Yurikan, Yuri Tastemaker, and scholar and it was just a great conversation is part of our ongoing series on Kabi's works with Erica on Alcoholic Escape in particular as Kabi reaches kind of a real turning point in these books in terms of what she wants these books to be and Kara getting the question of like whether it's really right to draw and depict her story what does she want to communicate through her art what is she trying to say through this story of her going through the ails of her alcoholism being hospitalized for it and struggling with her physical health and of course her ongoing conflict with her mental health and what is she trying to you know communicate and telling her stories about herself in these struggles artistically and it's a really great fantastic conversation on the book and it's always a pleasure to talk with Erica about Kabi's books and this one in particular and especially in prep for my wandering world existence like it, we wanted to release this episode for y'all to hear our thoughts on the book and like Kabi's evolving career and self-consciousness as an artist mm-hmm. yes and as i'm sure you guys will probably hear on the next episode as well it's i i always i don't want to say it's always like a fun time to visit uh nagata Kabi and her works because it's not really the word i would use but it's always like an interesting time uh again as as someone who you know, I've brought it up time and time again. I, I don't always personally relate to her works, but I still kind of enjoy on some level of visiting her works whenever uh, she has a new book out. And, you know, same goes for My Alcoholic Escape from Reality, which, as Lum mentioned, you know, this was a conversation that we originally recorded on our Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks as a bonus episode of the podcast. Um, we we had been, you know, sort of saving Nagata Kabi's you know, subsequent works, you know, after my lesbian experience with loneliness as sort of bonus pods. But uh, it's kind of come to the point where I think we're just going to start doing these as main episodes now, uh, starting with uh, my Wandering Warrior existence, which hopefully should be out after this episode, if not very soon after. Uh, that's what we're planning on anyway. But for now, before we release that in particular, uh, we did want to make this conversation in particular available, you know, on our public feed. And uh, once again, as a, sort of a preview for the kind of conversations you can look for on our Patreon once again at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. So, you know, if, if you like this conversation, maybe uh, maybe consider signing up for our Patreon. We would really, really appreciate it. But, uh, you know, if not, you know, we, we hope you enjoy the conversation anyway. Indeed. I always really resonate with Kabi's works very personally. And I just think she's just an incredibly talented artist whose own journey of self-discovery through these books and narratives has just been really incredible to see unfold as she, through these books, makes a lot of breakthroughs in self-realizations and self-actualizations about her own health, about her own life. And I think that 
even though a lot of her struggles are very harrowing, oftentimes very uncomfortable and worrisome, through these books we are seeing an evolution of her getting to a better place as a person working towards her own happiness. And this book, again, is a great turning point in that when you have a fantastic conversation with Erica about that. And we see the results of a lot of the breakthroughs she makes in this book in Wandering Warrior, which you'll hear us discuss next time. But indeed, this was a great conversation and now we are going to escape from our own realities into the past as we listen back to our discussion on My Alcoholic Escape from Reality by Nagata Kavi. Some people escape from their problems with alcohol and some escape from them with manga. And My Alcoholic Escape from Reality is when those two escapes and vices intertwine. And we're here today to discuss Nagata Kabi's next installment of her graphic memoir books with our returning guest, Erica Friedman, founder of Akazo and Yurikan. Thank you so much for having me back. I am so excited to be here to talk about this with you. I am as well. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and especially about Nakata Kabi's works. And Alcohol Escape from Reality is such an interesting book as a step forward in her career as a manga artist. Like there's a lot of interesting things that distinguish it from her previous books that I find like super interesting and I'm really excited to talk about them. Excellent. To begin with, I mean, you read the original Japanese version of this book before, long before the English version came out. So I was wondering, like, what were your initial impressions of Alcoholic Escape from Reality when you first read it? Like, what surprised you about it after having read her previous works? And what did you think of it initially? And have your thoughts on it changed after rereading the English edition? So that's a great question. Um... The two things that struck me the most, and this is so irrelevant to the content, is that one, she's back with an original publisher, which was, to me, really important. And we could talk about that later. Um, but she actually talked about that in her panel at TCAF this year, which yeah. was online. And I was really glad that, she, that that actually came up because it was really important to me. And, and actually, at the end of the book, she discusses that a little bit. So I think visually, of course, it's orange, not pink. So that, that sort of makes you think that there's something else going on. And again, she talked about that, how that was a bit of an accident. Yeah. Um, but it kind of puts you... In a surprisingly different place, doesn't it? It mentally makes you think, oh, wait, wait, we're not doing some of that same stuff anymore. And so it ended up being, I think, very effective visually to say we're letting some of that go to deal with this other thing, which is a bit more of the now so, so a lot of her earlier works, I felt, were very much about tying up stuff from her past mm -hmm. and kind of... I really feel like all of it really felt like a diary, you know, she, you know, she was really going, I mean, of course, with my soul exchange diary, she really just sort of surfaces that like dear self, you know, but in this one, she's more or less like looking at it like, okay, so here's what's going on right this second. And let's look at it from sort of a perspective of the now and addressing what is happening in the moment with her body. And since a lot of it is, is written actually from the hospital, you get a very, I think a real sense of sort of urgency or, or, or um, uh, currentness of it. And that all, I think, really just visually was expressed in the, to me initially, um, having reread it now in English. I feel like that my opinions have not changed about that, where she's kind of going, okay, all this stuff is sort of was big picture. 
And I was kind of looking at myself from this outside perspective, but now I'm inside my body and I have to talk about it from the very real, okay, I've got wires sticking out of my arm. And so I felt that that was very, very much about the, how am I coping with this thing that is occurring to me right now as I write about it? And so, so that to me really didn't change, but I felt like, well, of course, like anybody else, I think in your, in your native tongue, it becomes much more visceral. And of course, with, I want to say also, um, when I was reading it in English, I was also literally sitting there attached to an IV because I get transfusions twice a year, uh, not transfusions, infusions twice a year. And so I was reading that while I had an IV attached to me. So it was a very physical, visual, <laughs> visceral uh, experience. It was a full body sense wow. <laughs> experience for me. Oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure you could really relate to Kavi's frustrations being hooked up to the IV and it just being this inescapable thing. And I'm only attached to it two days, uh, four days out of a year. And so it's nothing like that. But man, that thing is really annoying. <laughs> so I totally, I totally understand her perspective. But yeah, it definitely gave me a very, very visceral experience while I was reading in English. I felt that way too. I felt like the way Kavi described her physical discomfort in Pana's book was super visible, visceral, even though I have not been hooked up to an IV ever, or I haven't like had this experience of like, you know, dealing with, you know, pancreatitis. I like, I still felt like the way she represented those sensations visually, like the urchins, like oh. rolling around inside her body. I feel it now. Just yeah. her visual metaphors for that pain she felt like it I could really feel it like I could imagine how that would feel like I mean I've had stomach pains that I felt like probably not nearly as bad as she did but I could definitely empathize okay I know similar pains I have felt and I can really understand oh my gosh like this is how like extremely painful Kabi is feeling the way she got and even though she hurt obviously the urchins a lot of the way she describes and depicts like kind of her uh, illnesses and her ailing organs, just kind of this kind of super deformed, simplified, like kind of goofy representations. Yeah, it's really cute, so, right? Yeah, there's a morbid comedy to it, but like it's also like, oh, you can really feel kind of the, yeah, that sense of pain and discomfort of like, oh, like I, the moment where she's like talking to her, or her pancreas, like, hey, please don't be a silent order. Tell me what's going on with you. It's really scary. It's just represented very humorously, but also, like, you can feel that. You can feel the stress and anxiety there. Oh, man. Yeah. I, uh, I, I I think I continue to be really impressed with just that about Kabi's works in general, just how she's able to depict certain things in a very, like, light and fluffy way, despite, like, the severity or, like, the, uh, depressing nature around certain things. Um, I laughed pretty hard, particularly around that part where, um, you know, like you were saying that she, uh, represents visually her stomach pains through like the sea urchins or whatever. And I, I laughed pretty hard at the one moment where one of the urchins was like, I could keep bouncing around and going on forever. Like they just, they're just so cute. Like I, I weirdly, this is probably a really weird thing to say about the series, but like th th they were the kind of characters I could see like buying a plush of or something. Like they just, yeah, they just yeah, look so right. cute. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If she wants to market that, that's like, here's my pancreatitis in visual form. <laughs> but oh you know, like Moyashimon, right? Moyashimon did that. We actually have a keychain of Asperlius and, uh, and, and the one I particularly bought on purpose is one of the most virulent diseases should it get in your lungs, but it was really cute. So, uh, <laughs> so we bought it on purpose, but you know, it's, 
there's a way of making it both relatable, but also it doesn't dull the pain. You know, it doesn't, it's not like, oh, here's, you know, you know, it's not making it like, okay, this is so cute. I can forget how serious this is. It's, you can really feel what it would be like to have the spiky thing bouncing around your insides, you know, and you really get it. You get that that sense is, yes, it's cute, but also it's really not at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Though I do think personifying these painful sensations and illnesses in this cutesy way does take power away from that pain. In this story, like Javi is describing a lot of her pain, but she's like kind of finding the humor in these experiences. And I do think these visual representations of her illnesses as mascots is a great way to, again, take the power and stress anxiety of that away and like saying these are not as dangerous or these are not like the the fearsome things that we have in our mind if we think of them another way. Sure. Instead of like gloomy, dark, overwhelming forces that you can't control, which of course you cannot control a great deal of these things. And, um, but putting a little cutesy faces on them and going, you know, giving them silly voices, you kind of infantilize them in a way that you can go like, well, screw you, little pancreas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that's such an interesting about this book to me is that it did feel a lot more focused on kind of Kabi's like, physical pain like her physical experiences whereas her previous books i think were more focused on how she felt emotionally like her describing like her life experiences how that made her like feel in terms of how it affected her psychology how it affected her opinion of herself and the world around her here is like this is what i was experiencing in the moment and this is what i'm describing to you what this felt like in the moment and i thought there was just such an interesting shift yeah and I do think it's also something she brings up that, you know, in writing this book, this was so recent to her when she started drawing this so recent to when this happened to her in comparison to what the story she told in her previous books like that were like she mentioned lesbian experience like covers a 10 year span of her life. And this is like about something that happened like a couple months of her life and she was drawing it a couple months after it happened to her and it got published basically a year after this event happened to her like this happened in October of 2018 and the book came out in November of 2019 so I thought that was interesting and her grappling oh it's just kind of hard to write because I don't have quite the clarity right now to take a step back and look back on this from you know, the perspective of retrospect, because like this is so recent, I feel like I'm still in it. And so it was interesting, like as she got to the end, like she was struggling, well, where do I end this story? Because this is something that's still happening to me. This is something I'm still dealing with. Right. I think it was very interesting. And I hope some of your listeners got to to, to watch that panel with her for TCAF. Yeah, uh, it was really interesting. Yeah, I did. It was so illuminating. Um, first of all, we got to see uh, Dabaoki's questions, but also that um, Jocelyn Allen's interpretation was great. How she kept the tone. She really, I didn't, I, I've seen her do that before, of course, but it, to have so many people, people watch it, to watch her really capture the tone of how Nagata Sensei talks, which is very interesting, her thoughtfulness and thinking about it. Um, it was really good because she was talking about how it became, you can see in the, in the comic how much of a pressure to actually get this down in the moment becomes, even as she's struggling with how do I do that physically, like I'm sitting on my bed, 
or sitting at have a table at my bedside? How do I physically get this down so I don't forget it right now while it's happening? Because yes, when you put perspective on it, it changes it, of course. And by having it as an actual in the moment thing, you're feeling the vitalness of it, you know, the urgency of all of it. And then to have her stop in the middle of me, like I was struggling with how I even get this down. And then reading a quote that changes her whole perspective of her own work was you really feel like you're sitting there watching it all happen, which is really interesting. Yeah, definitely. It feels like you're experiencing like this clear linear narrative of like hobby, like coming to the realization of, okay, like this is my experience and this is me now kind of in a meta aspect struggling how to write this story of the experience. And so it's fun in that respect. Like I think another interesting about this book is that it was not serialized like the previous story was. Like this was released all as one complete graphic novel. And I think that really shows in that it has a clear beginning, middle, and end, almost a clear true line to the narrative that doesn't feel like copy, like kind of, of course, was kind of freeform exploring in her previous books, like what was going on with her, what she was thinking about it here is like, it definitely felt like she had a sense of planning out like how she wanted to go about it, telling the story, which I think is a cool evolution for her as an artist to like, you know, tell like a longer form story like this, a complete graphic novel like this, just and publishing all at once in comparison to just installments of her previous works. And I think that has a lot to do with who the publisher was because she shifted back out of Shogaku-Khan and she was off of uh, Pixiv at that point, not doing it anymore that way. So I think that's some of that. I'm trying to find out though, hang on one second, I'm doing a little futzing on my website here, trying to find out if this was serialized online by one of the uh, Japanese website serializations because the current one she's working on was, is not, is, it's actually being serialized online by Futabasha. So while it's technically not a serialized comic in a magazine or anything, and it's not on Pixiv serialized, it's still serialized. So I'm just going to real quick, I'm just real quick doing this to see if that is the case. Yeah. Um, actually, it does appear to be on Pixiv. Hmm. So I'm, I'm just, Double checking here. No, it's it's the yeah. It looks like it is. It was serialized at least, maybe um, at least retrospectively on on Pixiv. I see. The story of the development in the book was interesting though, as like Kabi just kind of started, like she had an epiphany of like, oh, writing nonfiction manga, like this is a cool thing. Like this is something I can use to get across like how I'm feeling and just write these things that have been, you know, going on with me, boiling in my head down. And that's such a freeing thing. And then she kind of just started drafting it. And after drawing 17 pages, she kind of felt like she had a moment of clarity. Like she reached like kind of a, a thesis and that gave her the confidence to start reaching out to her publishers. And I do think it is notable that she went back to East Press because yeah, like, mentioned in the interview uh the tcap interview like she initially chose each press because she felt like it was the publisher that would put the most effort in editing and making it a proper book and i think that she kind of felt like with another like personal work like this like definitely she could trust each press to do a good job with it and certainly as described in the manga like the editor was incredibly receptive to us they were like this is great yeah keep going with this let's do yeah, this i mean the East Press is where she started, and I've always thought they're a really good uh, publisher for her because they do other comic essays. 
They do a lot of nonfiction and they're very queer friendly. Uh, just generally speaking, I've reviewed quite a number of East Press books over the years and they're very good. They're very good. Very, very good with personal memoir, which is, is strong. It's hard when you have a, um, a publisher who's used to something that's fictive and then you come with a personal memoir, they're going to want to make it like, let's make it pop here. And you can't because it's my memoir, you know? So, so for, she worked with East Press first and then moved to Chicago Con, which is, um, a huge company, a massive, massive company. And uh, not saying they did a bad job at all, but I can understand where they would have more requirements from her that, you know, timing and, and uh, I'm sure scheduling was, was tighter. And they, they have a process where maybe East Press is chiller. I think she's with Futabashi now, who I also think is an excellent publisher for her. So she's been really um, blessed in the, in the editorial uh, field. Uh, Futabasha, I also know, is very queer-friendly. They were the ones who published um, uh, Ototo no Oto, uh, Tagama-sensei's uh, My Brother's Husband. And they also published a lot of Yuri. So, And I've met some of the editors there, and they're all really cool people, the ones that I've met. So um, I think they're really super positive in terms of letting their writers do what they want to do the way they want to do them until they, you know, and, and they're there for guidance, not um, structure, if that makes sense. I feel like there's a difference between having a teacher who tells you you must do it this way and a teacher who goes, let's find the best way for you. You know, that's 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 an editorial thing that that is very hard to explain to somebody who's never been edited. <laughs> but it's really important to have an editor who understands your voice and not an editor who wants to make sure everything has the voice of the magazine or the look or whatever. So, um, so I think she's been really lucky with that. But I think that also that she did something really key at the end of that book that I'm not sure most people would have noticed. One of the things we all know, she started on Pixiv, she started this as a diary. One of the reasons she is where she is is because people started responding to her online in real time saying, hey, this is important to me. I really love this story. Thank you. You helped me because now I understand me better. And that has given her power to keep telling her story. It's it's that, that, that thing that marketers are talking about, authenticity. And I also want to say I had a, a, an epiphany this morning about that because representation has to be authentic. You cannot – I wrote an article and I just reposted it. It's um, um, about your story, my story, uh, your story, our story, more, my story. And when media companies tell our story, this is, this is our gay story or this is our gay character, it always feels unauthentic, even if the people writing it were themselves queer – because we're being told this is our story, for somebody to just go, this is my story. Every time it will always be more powerful than any other story there is, even if it's not my personal story. Absolutely. She says something at the end where she was struggling. She's in the middle of her crisis about writing this, and she's struggling about the idea that she has personally elevated fiction over nonfiction in a hierarchy of skill in her head and she has a crisis about this and it's again somebody else telling her this is important your story is important it has power and that engages her enough to realize that her nonfiction, which historically nonfiction is always more valuable but in her head, she had raised fiction up as a higher level of work. And now she realized that her story, told authentically, has power. And that's such a significant moment. Yeah. 
Like, I do find it so interesting. There are, like, two different instances in this book where she describes how reading another person's, like, personal experience gave her motivation or moment of clarity and was so helpful to her. And that also helped her rethink, like, her stance on writing nonfiction work and writing about herself and her own story. I do think her journey too into coming around to being comfortable with nonfiction again is also very strong because like the reason why she kind of seemed to shy away from it, like at the start of the book, like we have a scene where her dad is saying, are you going to write about this experience? And she's like, no, no way. I'm not going back to nonfiction. And the reason she describes as why she felt that she didn't want to return to nonfiction is because she had hurt her parents and hurt people she cared about by describing them and writing about them in her work and she wanted to avoid that she felt ashamed of that and she wanted to work in nonfiction because she wanted to write a story that you know her parents could read and be proud of but then as she continues on and is like struggling with writing nonfiction work is struggling with what story she wants to tell she realized hey like it's just freeing to, to write about myself and it's helpful to me and it's helpful to get my story out there like this i get a sense of catharsis right and if you if you think about it because it's become it's become a full circle right she put her story out that helped other people and when she was struggling other people helped her so it becomes this cycle of positive reinforcement where she has to some at some point in time she gets to the top of that cycle and goes oh wait this has power for other people just like their support has power for me and that's the thing it's that moment where she goes you know what i'm going to continue to be authentic and tell my story now of course we've already been told flat out by her in her books that she's not telling us everything and that's perfectly valid because realistically and this is something that I think some fans, but not all of them, struggle with this idea that, you know, you're not getting the whole story. It's not for you. <laughs> you know, it's not your <laughs> life. Um, so when she says at the end of um, My Solo Exchange Diary that her editor said, tell them what you want to tell them. And again, back to her story supports other people and gives them courage. And then somebody looks at her and says, it's okay. What you're doing is perfectly fine. And honestly, if there isn't a stronger, perfect message for Pride Month, I can't figure it out. Like, that's it. That's the story right there. I mean, I think that she's literally handing you the secret to life. You know, you be authentic, tell your story, make your art, do what you're doing the way you want to do it. And then when somebody else, when you need, someone will look at you and go, it's okay, you can keep doing that because it was important to me. Yeah, and there's a great quote when she kind of has come to that realization. It's your perspective and your values that give the work meaning. Maybe that's the most important thing. And yeah, like, I think that Kabi comes to that understanding that it is, like, important not to place, like, a limit on what she can write about. Mm -hmm. Like, she talked, has a conversation with her friend where it's like, her friend mentioned, you know, by forbidding yourself from doing diary manga, like, it was kind of blocking you. And so you should free your own pen. You should be free to tell your story. 
And uh, it's clear that the approach she has to depicting her parents in this book, or at least she, there is a change in how her parents are depicted in this book. I think she is definitely being mindful of how she's depicting the people around her. So even if like, you know, the doctor she portraying, like she portrays them sometimes a little negligent or not listening to her concerns about, oh, this big, like vial of painkiller is not working for me. Please don't do that. But they still give it her anyway. Like she's still being mindful now. Not to depict anyone in a negative or disparaging light necessarily. And with her parents specifically, I think that she portrays them as very like reliable and there for her. Like even if like they're still a little emotionally obtuse or blunt with her, there's still a sense of compassion you can feel from them for her. Yeah. And you, that has to be a bit of a breakthrough too, because in the original ones, you know, it, I don't think she was necessarily meaning to make them feel unemotional, but her experience of them was detached. Right. I mean, she thought they were just cold and unloving, but like, yeah, she had those breakthroughs in the previous book that she realized, oh, like there's more going on with them than she had realized. And even though they don't express themselves in a way that she can readily understand their emotions, their feelings. Like, it was clear that they did care about her, but she had just interpreted their signals in a negative way. And here, like, I think they're depicted as, like, yeah, they're not, like, the most emotionally certain. They are blunt with her, but she can understand better now, like, where they're coming from and understand, like, just how they express themselves. I think a great moment is when she found that quote from uh, Darochan chapter and she was like, oh, this is how my mom felt. And she sent that to her mom and her mom was like, yeah, wow, this is how I felt. And I just didn't know how to describe it for you. Right. And there's that too, because, because her perspective, and this is, I mean, I'm coming from this perspective of not only watching her struggle with this, but also being significantly older than her. And a lot of my perspectives is like, yes, when I was your age, I did that. <laughs> the, the idea that she's thinking about all people, all people think about their parents as parents, not people. You don't think about your parents and their perspective of their trials, their struggles, their them as as adults trying to figure out what to do with you as a child. Maybe maybe if you think about that day when you had that big fight with your, your parents and you were, I don't know, let's say 14 years old, and you're thinking, of course, how hysterical you were and they weren't understanding you. And they were looking at you going, why can't you understand my feelings? I can't do that, you know? And so I'm looking at her perspective. She's come to a point in this book where she's starting to understand that her parents have a life outside her and as her parents. And that's the thing where, you know, that, that thing where all teens are horrible and then eventually they become okay again? It's, it's, that's the thing that switches. So we get a moment to see how she's moving from that sort of, it's really very similar to being teenage, even though she's an adult, this idea where she's very much about her and her issues and her emotions and her things, where she starts going, oh, other people have their own experiences of that same exact argument, you know, and people who are not me are not me and their perspective is valid for them. And you can see, and that's that in a lot of ways is how I define maturity. That moment when when you stop realizing you're the only one in the room. Yeah, I think that is such a great evolution for her because in lesbian experience, like it was so focused on like herself and how other people around her related to herself. And oftentimes she would portray them in antagonistic light, like they were 
causing problems for her. They were making her feel bad. And then in this book, like she kind of has more empathy and understanding that other people just have the way they express themselves or they just in general behave. And that might not always like make her feel the most reassured and comfortable, particularly like with the doctors. Like there was that one doctor who like was very blunt with her as like, hey, you know, if Pankyet gets this bad, like you're going to have like a lot of these problems. And she gets like super anxious about that. But like, there's no point in this book where any of those doctors or anyone else is like portrayed like as antagonistically as like out to get her. Like she understands that other people are conducting themselves in their own way, but no one is like uh, antagonist in her life. Like she just has to coexist around these people and try to understand them. And she depicts them empathetically in this book. Yeah. I agree. But I really do appreciate, like, how with that renowned uh, clarity she has with her parents, she has, like, two, like, specific moments in this book where her mother, like, really... Uh, her relationship with her mother really shows how much she's grown closer to her or how much she can rely on her now. Like, we, there's a note about, like, how when she was in the hospital, she and her mother, like, would email each other every day. And, like, she would check up on her. And so you definitely got a sense of, yeah, like, her parents were, like, being very close and keeping tabs on her and, and concerned about her. But then also, like, when she gets out and she's depressed about the fact that she can't indulge in alcohol anymore or have sweets or fatty things. And she's like, man, there's so many things I can't do now and I have to be medicated for the rest of my life. And her mom was like, why are you thinking about it like that? You know, you're, if you get medicine for the rest of your life and you go to these record checkups, you know, you're going to be fine. So you've got to think about it some other way. Like, yes, like as a consequence of your alcoholism, like you have lost like some of these the freedom to readily indulge in these things you like to do, but you know, you can still live a long and healthy life if you still do these other things and you should think about the positive. And like, she makes a, a comparison that Kabi didn't find like the most, Kabi said that she found a little unsettling, but some irreversible changes are good. Like when a child stops eating, but like sometimes, you know, uh, if a big change happens, it can be a good thing. And this might be a good thing for her. And so that really helps Kabi to think about it differently. Like that this is not the end of something. This is like just a new direction in her life. Exactly. I, I mean, I found this book unintentionally inspiring. Like, uh, so in, in a way that the earlier books hadn't, um, because when I first first read uh, My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness in Japanese, somebody had said to me, oh, will this ever be translated into English? And I was like, no, who would translate this? <laughs> and of course, it became a blockbuster because because I had forgotten about other people. <laughs> and, and so I forgot that other people were going to do what they did on Pixar, was read this and go, yes, somebody's telling the story that I can identify with. In this one, it's not whether or not we identify it is no longer whether or not we identify with this is no longer the issue. The the larger issue of her particular physical ailment is not an issue all of us may have had. But what she has become is a person who makes everything personal so that we all can understand the bit of that that we absolutely do identify with. So while I do not have alcoholic pancreatitis, the things that I do have that are wrong with me, I can go, yes, I 100% understand that there are things I am limited from doing because of things that are, A, are, are 
some are things that I've done with myself, but also some are things that I just got stuck with. And, you know, my genetic lottery went, ha ha, you're going to not be able to do this forever. So as a result, I can totally understand that even if I don't necessarily understand the specific problem, she has found a way of rendering any individual problem down to the parts where we all can understand the consequences or the emotions of dealing with that problem, the problem aside. And I think that's going to, that is really her specific strength is that it's not the thing, it's the things about the thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like she's just such an expert in articulating her experiences and describing them in a way that you can really empathize with them and feel them even if you've never experienced them yourself. But if you have experienced these similar situations or similar feelings, like you can really resonate with her. And it is a source of catharsis and comfort to know, hey, someone went through all this and they're describing their experiences to you. So you're not alone in them. And you can learn from her story some positive takeaways about where to go in the future or like how to reconcile what you went through. And I think one of the cool things about the story is that we see Kabi come to this realization about nonfiction, like memoir manga, and realize that there has got to be like a theme. There's got to be a message she wants to describe. She wants to draw manga with learning realizations. Like she becomes very mindful now about what she wants to get across in her stories and how she wants the reader to interpret and what takeaways she wants them to get out of her work. Right. So she's open in the same way that she's opening up her disease. She's opening up her, her journey as, as an artist, as a writer, as a, a as a, an artist. And I think that's really interesting because we don't get to see that a lot. I listened to a podcast, which I highly recommend to all your listeners called manga Splaining. Oh yes. yeah. I love that show. Love it. Aren't they great? That's it's absolutely fantastic. So um, for anybody who doesn't know, Manga Explaining is uh, David Brothers and Deb Aoki and Christopher Butcher explaining to Chip Zdarsky, who is a, a comic artist, uh, a well-known award-winning comic artist here in the West who doesn't read manga and where they pick a manga every week and they, they all talk about what's important about it and about Chip's feelings about it and sort of introducing him to the tropes and the ideas of manga. And in a sense, that is what Kabi Nagata is doing with her work is... One of the things they talk about a lot among explaining is because, is of course, Chip is reading the first volume of 70, you know? And so you can, you know, they talk about like, well, it's very immature art, but as the artists go along, things change over time. And we can see if we've been reading One Piece since the beginning, art has changed. The art has changed from positive and negative, but there's different concepts and, and the way the art is approached is differently. You don't get to see that a lot. We're literally watching this in real time with this woman. Because she is surfacing every single part of it. Normally, the art changes and you just go, wow, volume two is better than volume one. And that's it. That's all you get because you're not you're not an art history major and you're not going, wow, so I can see that the lines are stronger and the weight is different. Um, in manga's playing, they actually can do that. And in Nagata Sensei's work, you can actually see it in real time, which will say, so this thing, I thought, thought about this. And now I realize that, yes, I'm doing this. I have a thesis. I have a concept. I have a message, I have a goal, and you actually watch her process it throughout in both text and art in our face while while she's doing while you 
she's doing it. You're like, okay, this is not something we usually are, are we're not habitually used to somebody actually working that out. It's almost 19th century where, you know, the essayist would sit there and say, well, as I write this essay, I face my fears. And, you know, like, you're reading this, like those, these ivory tower essays, you don't get this. This is really pushing manga essays and comic essays into a whole new field where, where she's writing something that I think is going to be used as a textbook one day soon for how do you write nonfiction and make it work? Mm-hmm. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I, I definitely love that I'll call Escape for Reality. It's not just a story that it's about her experiences with pancreatitis and being hospitalized. It is also a story about her development and evolution as an artist, her growth as an artist, and how her perspective, like what she wants to get across in her art changes, like just over this short times period and yeah i love it in the context of her previous works to see her become like originally she was writing just to kind of describe what she was feeling but she didn't like necessarily have more of a purpose behind it than that but now she knows like because of how she her awareness of how her works have been received how people respond to it like she has more of a cause like a definite goal she has in mind with getting across this work that she's driving towards and that she's trying to achieve in terms of communicating between her and her readers. Like, it's no longer just her writing it to express herself. Now it's writing to communicate something to her readers. Mm -hmm. Which actually, I think, if you don't mind, would bring me to the next book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Meso Senshi Nagatakabi has come out in Japanese and it's been licensed already by Seven Seas because they're not stupid. Um, it's going to be my wandering warrior existence. <laughs> um, I want to say about it, one of the comments after, and we keep referring to this, and I'm sorry that it's no longer up, but so if you missed it, you can't see it anymore, the TCAF uh, interview. Mm-hmm. But luckily, ANN has a kind of summary of it, oh, a write-up okay, of excellent. the interview. So we'll link it in the show notes. Thank but, you very much. Yeah. Okay. So, so... Um, in that, there was a comment on the YouTube comments, and somebody said, I hope her next book is about her hugging kittens. I want to assure you that is definitely not what this <laughs> oh, next book yeah. is about. Um, so in this book, and she does allude to this in the interview, one of the questions that Deb asked was, you know, is she going to delve a little bit more into her personal issues with, um, and issue is not the word, her personal perspectives on her gender and sexuality? And the answer is yes. And there's a lot of, so she opens up that locked casket again you know i mean uh, she she obviously my lesbian experience with loneliness starts from there from this perspective of hey you know i know i'm queer but i've never really been comfortable having human relationships um you know just the idea of just humaning was hard and um and so she's going to be addressing that and it's not the happy journey you might hope for so, and I don't want to spoil anything. I think it's going to be very powerful when people, and I will review it this, hopefully this week, but she, she deals with things like uh, sexual assault that she um, mm-hmm. underwent when she was very young and um, her perspectives, her feelings about her, her gender and her body and her sexuality, uh, those things are going to be surfaced. And it's, I'm really glad for it because it's a very, it's not an easy book to read. Bottom line, it was not easy for me to read. I had, I had a lot of uh, hard feels about it, but I feel like when it's done, that box is empty or mostly empty. Like at least in terms of public facing stuff, 
I think anything beyond that might be like something you don't even want to necessarily do in the public. But really, I feel like it was the last bit. It's like she's just scraping out the bottom of that box so we can leave that box open on the shelf and never deal with that part again. So now we can move forward. And in fact, uh, she already has another series now, which is why I feel like my alcoholic escape from reality is so hopeful. Because at the end, when you realize she's got all these series, her stuff going on, her stuff that she did, all these publishers basically there for her if she wants them, that to me is the, the happy ending right there. That's it, that she has the energy and the focus and the clarity of purpose to be able to keep creating. And she, she says during the book that she got the biggest offer of her life. And that's the Futabasha one. And that's the new series she's working on, which is being currently uh, serialized on uh, web action. And if you go on Okazu, I have links for it and everything. It's called Meso Senshi Nagatakabi Gourmet de Go. So I want to just say this, take a moment and think about the person that you would have writing a food manga. Because the person who started this all with her discussion of her eating disorder, is now writing a food manga. And I don't think it's the thing that you think it is. <laughs> no, it's about her eating disorders and how her relationship with food has been informed by these eating disorders. Which, it sounds very uh, painful to read, but also still interesting. Yeah, exactly. So, I think when you all read uh, Meso Sanchi and Nagatakabi, My Wandering Warrior Existence, I think you're all going to kind of go, yeah, that feels like the last time we're talking about some of that stuff. And then we move on to this other stuff. And, you know, I, I'm going to say, I think that she's really found a way to surface things that are not surfaced. And this is what I think she did that's so important. She said mental health and physical health and all these things, sexuality and gender, all, all things that can be discussed in public. And that, to me, is what's going to make her so important. I, I feel like we are watching in real time the, the work of somebody who will always from now on be considered a master. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I'm just so interested to continue to follow Kabi's work, not just her memoir work. Like I do hope to see her return to more fiction because one thing I really loved uh, at the end of the book is that she realized like kind of the core theme she comes back to in her writing is this conflict between her loneliness and her quest for love. And that's not something she's just focusing on a memoir. She realizes, oh, this could be a focal point in my fiction, too. And so she wants to do both memoirs and fiction. And I really like that she kind of reached that sense of clarity about what she wants to draw and what topics she wants to draw about. And it seems like with uh, Wandering Warrior Musicians, she's getting out some of those utter demons that she really needed to get off her chest and explore. Yeah, I definitely got the sense that's exactly that was that's in, in a nutshell that I felt that she was getting a few more of those demons off her chest. Absolutely. But that's also what I really love about the ending of this book and what it makes you feel so different than her other books is that she in this book, she ends it by specifically saying, like, I hope we'll meet again. Like she addresses the readers like it, she faces the readers like she is looking directly at you in that final page and she's telling you like i hope you meet again i'm only ending this tale i'm ending she has told this chapter of her life and what she has went through what she's learned from it and she closes the book on that and now she's going to begin a new page and a new chapter and she's going to continue to explore that and i really like that i really again i like that sense of awareness she has about 
the story she's writing and how she's writing about her life and what she wants to accomplish with that and like what she wants to do going forward with her career. Yeah, it, it was more mature. There was a sense of maturity, a, a sense of yeah. centering. She feels more grounded when she, yes. And, and the visual of her turning and looking at us was powerful. I mean, I'm a big fan of breaking the fourth wall generally. <laughs> um, you know, and just breaking, breaking character and just turning and addressing the audience because that's a powerful message. Like, I see you there. I know you're there. This was a journey we all started, you know, I started by myself, but we're together now and we're going to, we're still going to be together for a while. And, and I'm going to recognize that she recognizes that other people have a place in the story. She's not screaming into a void. And really that is an extraordinary thing all by itself. Because when you start writing a diary, drawing a diary on Pixiv, you're screaming into a void. Mm -hmm. And now she's not screaming into a void anymore. And she knows it and she's acknowledging it to our face uh, which is puts pressure on us to behave. And I yes. think that's important too. Absolutely. Like, it's great to see her become comfortable with the fact that she knows now people are invested and in following her story. But she is okay with that. But it's such an anxiety uh, for her. Like, early on in the book, and she also described it in Soul Exchange Diary, but especially, like, early on, like, she was so hesitant to draw the story about her experiences in the hospital and dealing with pancreatitis because she was like worried about what the response on social media by readers would be that they would disparage her for her choices that led her there or for writing about her pain again and not getting better. And she learns just to block it all out. Like whatever other people might say, she doesn't have to look at that, but she needs to get she needs to express herself freely. She can't just put a lid on what she feels just because she's afraid of what other people will think. Yeah. And I think we've gotten to the point where we all have to just just admit that when you put anything out there anywhere in the world, someone somewhere is so small and sad that the only joy they find in it is being an asshole. And those some people somewhere are no longer, they should not be part of any conversation. Like, if there's somebody out there, you know, actually, I have banned this comment from my blog because I had a, a commenter who just constantly was saying, well, someone on this forum said something. I don't care. There will always be someone who is so small and pathetic a human existence that the only joy they can find is making, is insulting somebody so they can just feel a little less shitty about themselves. That person is no longer welcome in any of my conversations ever. And that's, that's, I'm saying this, I'm saying this, this is the last time anyone will ever have this conversation with me. That person <laughs> could just go fuck off. So, so yeah. the bottom line is that's her also acknowledging that, you know, I'm hesitant, but for all the for the very few small people who will be critical, there are so many more people who need to hear that. And those are the people I'm writing for. Again, a moment of clarity and centering in which that becomes more important than fear of who the hell cares about what that jerk thinks. Absolutely. Yeah, especially when someone is trying to be just so vulnerable about what they're going through to just respond to just ridicule or disparagement is just such an act of mean-spirited cruelty that is just so unnecessary. It's an act of... Pettiness. Well, yeah, and it's a pathetic act of mm -hmm. inhumanity because that all that says is you're just so small and nothing. You have literally nothing 
that the only way to make your your nothing feel like a plus one is to make somebody else's a minus one. Like that's a weird zero sum way of even thinking about life. Like, okay, you're jealous. Okay. You can say I'm jealous and then let that inspire you. I mean, you could just be inspired without the jealousy. Yeah. It's just a complete lack of empathy. I'm thinking about that moment from uh, from One Punch Man right now, where, uh, where where Saitama gets that one letter in the mail scrawled out in like blood or red ink or whatever, and he's just like, "This guy's got a lot of free time." And like he just doesn't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I I, uh, I haven't said a lot through this podcast. I do want to apologize to listeners out there in case anyone is for some reason interested in my thoughts on this thing. I actually was. I was just about to ask you. Um, and I mean, you know, Nagata Kabi's kind of a weird, uh, uh, kind of a weird thing for me where, like, I really like her stuff and I do enjoy reading her stuff. But I think it's because I, I just don't relate to her a lot of the time specifically that I'm just kind of like, oh, this is, I don't know if nice to write where I want to say. But it's always kind of, it's it's an interesting experience always keeping up with her in particular and, like, what's going on, even if, you know, even if she is... Uh, dealing with some difficult stuff. And I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about like shitty internet comments and everything. And, you know, I, I was just thinking about that one page where uh, for a bit, she is like constantly worried about like what other people are going to say about her, like her alcoholism and everything online. And like the inevitable, really shitty comments she's going to get, you know, constantly judging her because, because alcohol, alcoholism automatically makes you a bad person, I guess, or whatever, Right, right. you know, seeing things completely like black and white and everything. And, you know, I, I, I do, I do appreciate her, you know, what you guys were mentioning earlier about kind of her artist's journey and coming to terms with the fact that, oh, like, uh, writing nonfiction, you know, is really helpful for her. And it is something that like, at the end of the day, she still on some level enjoys and still helps her, uh, even though, you know, sometimes I do struggle with like, as a reader, I I, I kind of struggle with like, you know, being like, oh, like I feel bad like enjoying her work sometimes because it's like I don't, I, I don't, it's 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 weird. I always have to grapple with like, no, that's yeah. a real thing. That's a real thing. It's really hard. You, I think Colton, you just actually put your finger on something really important that I wanted to address. Okay, um, it is. Absolutely nailed it. It's a guilty feeling to enjoy her misery. It's difficult for me to enjoy it as like a piece of entertainment, even though it's on some level meant yeah. to be. It's it's it, yeah. they're difficult feelings to parse through. I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. It's it's a thing. I think. Let me just read this here. Um, this is what I wrote about this specifically, and and it's been sitting here. I wanted to read it. in my review of, of this book in Japanese. I said we've watched Nagata Sensei struggle with food, with alcohol, with depression, and now with her pancreas. It's all very heavy going, but as a reader, I don't feel like I have the luxury of wallowing since for any bleak feelings I might have, I have to believe that it's harder for her. Oh, yeah. To some extent, the mm-hmm. only thing we can be do is be distant, abstract cheerleaders on the sidelines of the part of her life she chooses to share with us. We have to know we're not getting the whole story and we have to be okay with that. So we mentally pull for her and send her good thoughts. And I think you just nailed that. That's it. We're, we're, we're watching this. You said something and I don't think you even thought about it. You said to like, you're not in touch. Like you, it's almost like she's getting in touch with her going still here. <laughs> Here's the Christmas postcard still here. And yeah, things are still hard and you feel guilty for wanting it. 
and also kind of enjoying it as a form of entertainment, which as you say, it's it's clearly meant to be, but also you do desire it because you are pulling for her and you are a fan and you do want her to be okay. So so I think those complicated feelings are dead on exactly where she wants you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is difficult to read like her talk about clearly very painful experiences that she's gone through. And of course, like uh, really consequential uh, things that are happening in her life, like her struggle with alcoholism and then pancreatitis like that, as she describes, it has consequences that's going to carry strews to the rest of her life. But she has clear purpose in describing these experience to us as readers like that she wants readers to get something and learn something out from her experiences like she she, again she is trying to convey a message to us and it's hard yeah to read this as like entertainment because it is weird it feels wrong to take pleasure in seeing someone else's pain Mm -hmm. but i think that you know, she is trying to sh- show the humor in the painful experiences like we described, like of how she personifies like her different experiences with pain and her ailing organs and her, these situations of frustration with the IV and just tries to find the comical in what is otherwise a harrowing experience and then trying to move forward and say, hey, like there are a lot of difficult, painful things that I have gone through and that you may have gone through, but like here is how I have decided to interpret those and then have learned from those and I'm moving forward in my life. And maybe that can be helpful to you to maybe also get your own takeaways and your own sense of clarity from my experiences. Yeah. I mean, when I think about her work, I tend to think about it very much in the terms of like uh, 18th and 19th century, um, essay writers, uh, these guys sitting around, you know, I think about like Goethe's uh, Sorrow of Young Werther, where we have literally an entire novel about an emo guy with absolutely nothing that I cared about in the entire story. And now I had to read about it both in English and in German. Um, and who would I rather read about? You know, a fictitious emo kid who's suffering from love of the one, the only woman in the entire town he can't have, you know, I mean, I mean, oh, man, I feel really sorry for him. Yeah. Talk about like, I spent my whole life. I was a comparative literature major. I read in multiple languages stories about these young, wealthy men who did nothing but sit around and bemoan their life of luxuries. And I don't care. And I never cared. I would rather read something this woman telling me these raw stories. Again, I maybe don't in particular have this specific issue, but I know what it feels like to uh, rely on doctors and nurses and and who you hope are are remembering that you're an individual in the middle of all the, the chart data, you know? And so those things I can identify with, and we can take those pieces and at least feel that they're relevant to us. But again, then there's the conflict but it's entertainment. So it becomes, I think the, I think the tension is actually at this point, hundred percent intentional mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's, she's telling us, I have tension about telling you these things. You should feel tension about reading them. <laughs> I feel that's yeah. really, that's really masterful. And if she's not doing it intentionally, then she's, you know, I don't believe that she's done doing it unintentionally. I believe that her editors and she are smarter than that. And she's going, wait a second, I'm making this uncomfortable. Because it was uncomfortable. If I feel uncomfortable telling you, you should feel uncomfortable reading it. 
Yeah, I think she has a definite sense of self-awareness. At this point, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the beginning, she was just opening her heart, but it's working. And so she's going with it. And and I really do. I do think that she is, if I were going to teach a class about writing nonfiction, she absolutely, particularly if I was talking about comic essays or manga essays, I would definitely have her uh, consider a masterwork. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, again, I just think that with this book, it like feels like a true artist statement for her. Like her previous books, like again, were her just opening her heart and like describing how she was feeling, you know, to the world. But now this is like her as an artist saying, Oh, this is what I want my work to be about. These are the yes. messages I want to get across. And so I really like that. It's kind of a turning point for how she approaches the manga she draws. And it makes me really looking forward to future for her career. And obviously a lot of the things she describes in her autobio work is going to be very painful and it'll be difficult to read. Obviously more difficult for her to write, but as readers also puts us in a compromising place of like wanting to know what's going on with her, but also, you know, worried about the pressure that this is placing on her. But it, I feel like with this book, she has come to that sense of awareness of like uh, how people care about her and then like the expectations readers have of her, but what she herself wants to get out of the work she draws and now has decided to not as much worry about like what other people will think so much as like what she wants to say and get across, which I think is a great move for an artist. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And there were definitely uncomfortable things where, like, she was grappling with that those reader expectations in a way that could be damaging that I think it's important for readers to be mindful for. Like, there is a point at the end of the book when she was describing, like, oh, man, like, how am I going to end this story? I don't know how to end the story. Should I... Should I relapse? Should I get hospitalized again as an ending? And that makes you pause and like, uh oh, like, is she at risk of intentionally doing self harming things just to write about them? Yeah, I mean, you could see that conversation with herself. Like, it was just, it was like one of those splurts that happen in your head. And you know that it's stupid even as you say it, but you know, it comes into your head and you can't stop that, you know? Right. I think it was just a passing thought for her. Like, I hope it wasn't something she was, like, seriously considering. Although she does mention, like, uh, also, like, she uh, had, a like, a suicide attempt uh, that she described in the story, too. But, like, she, I think that, again, like, by telling us that this was something she was considering, she is, like, letting us as readers know that she is, like, so self-aware of, like, readers' concerns that she might do these things. She was she was taking the power out of it, too, by by surfacing it. Again, a lot of what I feel like this is, is the reason this stuff sometimes has so much hold on us is because we just don't feel like it's something we're supposed to talk about. And now, every time somebody famous comes out with depression or something... It does make a difference. Someone somewhere did not realize it was okay to just say that. I need help. And she says that over and over and over. And and I think her overarching message is we all need help. So to be able to just say, you know, if if this is an idea you had, you can take power out of it simply by telling someone. That's a, a whole message right there, too. I think that's just the essential important thing about Kabi's works is that she is taking these very uncomfortable situations, these feelings, experiences that people are afraid to talk about openly. And by sharing them, she has 
kind of clears the stigma of talking about these things. She makes other people feel more comfortable of talking about their own experiences. Which is, yeah, exactly what happened on Pixiv originally, yeah. Yeah, and taking the steps forward to address them and get better and open up communication with other people about these problems. Like, as much as it hurt her parents to depict them in the way that she did in Lesbian Experience, I do think that by doing that, she and has ended up seemingly forming a better understanding of them and a stronger connection to them. Mm-hmm. And I think with Japanese readers, particularly the, the you know, there's this this idea of you know the things that you can talk about at the dinner table, right, or things you could talk about with your in laws, right? You sit down, you know, we we in America we tend to think all oh, like politics and religion are the two things you can't have those arguments about, but mental health and physical health are definitely way up there. And people who have chronic illnesses, people who have chronic mental disease, um, people who have even individual, you know, disabilities and stuff are all people who know exactly how much nobody at the table wants to hear them talk about it. And I think that that's uh, that message of like, we need to be able to make space for these things, particularly even when it's uncomfortable and even when it's your family being uncomfortable, that may be the thing that's going to change everything for you for the best if you just actually take that plunge and have that conversation. Yeah, and I think above all, that's among the most important takeaways to have from Copy's works. And I think that's why I continue to look forward to reading them and am interested in seeing where her, not just her life's, the journey goes, but like her journey as like an artist goes. Yeah. I mean, speaking of her journey as an artist, I didn't get a chance to say it earlier, but I mean, her art in this particular work is so great. Like I mm-hmm. absolutely, and I, I think Erica brought it up earlier, how like, you know, uh, with the kind of change in colors and everything, like it's, it's so amazing how like a simple change in color from going uh, kind of the like a pink motif that she used with lesbian experience and solo exchange diary to this kind of a uh, orangish uh, kind of color, you know, r- really like changes the mood of everything. It's just it's just kind of amazing, like the power one simple color change has on like an entire work uh, and how it like uh, differentiates the mood between uh, her different stories and whatnot. Absolutely. And it's so interesting because in the TCAF interview, she was asked about why she went with this color choice. And basically, it was just like an editorial kind of mistake. Like her publisher, her editors just said, oh, this color looked orange. And so they uh, rendered it in orange and then they sent it to her for approval and she just like went with it. And so it wasn't necessarily an intentional thing to go with orange. But I think it really did work out because like as we have described, like whereas her previous books were definitely more focused on how she felt emotionally, this book really focused on like her physical feelings and experiences and pains. And I think the orange color complements that because it does feel like a sickly color, a color that is more evocative of that kind of grounded pain rather than kind of the more heightened and softer, but still like more like uh, emotional sensations of the previous book where she was describing like her personal feelings, like her thoughts and stuff like that. So yeah, I feel like the orange color like definitely complement this book in a surprising way. Yeah, I agree. 
But I also think that her art in general was just so strong in this. Like, the solo exchange 2 went a little sparse in background details, but here, like, she definitely does a lot more detailed environments, and she experiments with kind of the camera angles of panels. Like, in the first page of the book, like, kind of the upward shot looking from the perspective of her looking up towards the ceiling at, like, her doctor looking down at her, like, that's such a great angle. Like, she really does play around with her art a lot. I really love page 17, uh, where the top border of the panel has been changed to, like, the outline of a word balloon. And it recontextualizes the previous pages as, like, her thinking about the story of how she got into this situation where she's not hospitalized in that moment. I just really think that she starts experimenting as an artist in such interesting ways in this book. And I really, really like seeing that. No, yeah, I I really appreciate the way she played with like certain shots and like compositions and whatnot in this volume in particular that I think has really improved since her first autobio work. Not not, not that I'm saying she started off as like a bad artist or anything, but like... No, but it's not that. There's a a change and the change is notable and I think it's there to be noted. No, yeah. The first page that like really impressed me in particular is when she gets out of the hospital and she realizes like how much time has passed since she's been in the hospital and receiving care. And that shot of her looking up kind of in a daze with like leaves blowing in the background, it's such a great shot. Uh, that that really like activated something in me almost like oh this is really this is really good <laughs> the skewed angle the drifting in the air leaves like it is such a very potent visual i think even if you look at the cover the way she drew the bed is so off kilter mm-hmm. yeah and you get the sense of it being so like we're starting from this instability right off the bat the moment you pick up the cover, you know, and that's it's a great look at what weakness feels like. You know, I'm unhinged, unbalanced, all these things sticking in me. Like you can absolutely see everything about that that image is an incredibly strongly evocative sensation. Absolutely. I think one of the funniest pages, actually, in this book was when she eats that, like, uh, I forget what it is, that like, that, that little, like, treat that she won in, like, a raffle or whatever. Obviously, she, she's not supposed to eat, like, certain foods due to her condition, but she kind of gives in and eats in. She just has this entire page of her uh, running up and uh, to, to the roof and shouting to the heavens how much she loves fat and oils. It, uh, that, that, made me laugh, that made me laugh pretty hard. It was pretty good. Yeah, she, I mean, again, she... As painful as these experiences are, as, like, uncomfortable as they can be, like, she really knows how to illustrate them in such a humorous way that deflates them and also just makes them just very endearing and also kind of allows the the reader to soften their guard a little bit to just take in and appreciate the story. Yeah, that's a really good point right there. That's, That's an excellent point. Yeah, I mean... I love the moment, like probably one of my favorite moments in the book is when she's told that she can finally be discharged and her doctor is telling her like all of these consequences that she's going to have to live with from now on. But in the moment, she isn't really hearing it like she just has discharged literally on her brain (laughs) and then we have all these great visuals of her like showing a verdict to a bunch of reporters that she's been discharged sending a smoke signals to the mountains (laughs) going through a conch like again I i think that she really has a brilliant way of illustrating her life with such humor and like finding the humor in her pain in a way that's 
very comforting guitar tone. I personally think that's kind of like the secret to her autobio stuff in particular is that like sense of levity and how like uh I guess I don't know if this is the right word to use it, but like pa- how palatable her art makes these like heavier topics and issues. I-, I think personally that is the secret to like how people can still like enjoy her stuff, you know, despite the topics that she tackles. Right. She's not like mired in just the pain. It's not like she's describing, oh, everything is painful and miserable and nothing is getting better. Like by using humor, she's like deflating the severity of like, obviously it's a severe situation she found herself in, but she's deflating the hold that had on her. And the message of the story is always one of hope. Like it's a hopeful message that, hey, you know, I went through this experience, but I've learned from it, and now I'm moving forward. And I want you to follow me on my journey, and I hope you may have also learned something from my story, and that can be helpful to you too. And I think that's a really important key in, in, uh, to her work overall, is that it's not there's no sense of wallowing. And I, I, I qualify the use of that word because it's got a lot of pejorative um, yeah. impressions, but... There to me, wallow has a very specific feel, which is that there's no movement. There's a difference between sharing things that you've gone through that are painful or hard, or things that you're going through, which is is even harder, I think, when you're in the middle of something trying to articulate something that's hard. And there's wallowing. Wallowing to me is a very specific thing. It's those people who you meet who within 30 seconds of you meeting, you know everything about them. That's wrong. That's bad. That's negative. That's that's hard for them. And you don't know anything about them at all other than those things. And I'm not saying disclaiming disabilities. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who walk up and go, I just need you to know my worst traumas right now up front. And I'm like, okay, but now let's talk about why you have not processed any of those and I'm being required to process them. Like, there's a difference to me about the kind of person who performs their trauma for you because that's who they are in their head. And the kind of person who says, these are parts of who I am. They are things I am dealing with right now. These are things that I have dealt with. This is, but life is all about movement and change. And I don't know who I might be tomorrow. And that to me is a bit of a difference with her work that she doesn't go, this is who I am. This is who I've ever been. I'll never be anybody else. She says, this is something I'm doing. This is something I've done. Who knows what I'm going to be tomorrow? You and I will be here to talk about it later, which is a totally different thing that I 100% absolutely agree with. I I think it's, it's a very healthy way of approaching. We all have lives full of actual and imagined trauma. And uh, I'm not, I, in no way am I ever saying that somebody's really horrible life trauma shouldn't be something that that changes them. But also, are you always going to be only that person? No, yeah, for sure. There should be more to the sum of a life than that one thing. And while absolutely those things are worthy of being discussed and worthy of being addressed and worthy of being surfaced, also you can make a choice today to be one new thing. And in this book, she makes that choice right in front of us. Mm-hmm. My my only hope with Kavi's works in particular are that as long as writing her life story down is somewhat therapeutic for her and it's something that she gets a lot out of or even maybe like on some level enjoys, maybe. Um, I, I hope it continues to be that for her in particular and I hope she never gets to a point where like 
she feels pressure to like keep letting people know how she's doing out of some kind of obligation to like you know write and sell something i i hope she never gets to that point personally and luckily i think she's been very blessed with publishers who aren't particularly motivated for that specifically and certainly with with five publishers to choose from she has a chance to kind of pick and choose her own battles now i'd like to see her have balance in herself so that she can create just what she wants to create, the way she wants to create it. To me, that's the most important thing because I know the manga industry as a whole is is full of pressure. Um, So I hope she just gets to continue to create what and how she wants to create. For sure. Absolutely. Um, But I think we are getting kind of to our end point here unless unless there's anything else like you guys want to bring up before we start wrapping up here soon. I think that was a good point to end with, actually. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of great points about this book. And yeah, I mean, obviously, the subject matter can be very uncomfortable for people to read, especially if you can really relate with them. But I think that all of us here are very invested in Nagata Kabi as a creator. And we found a lot to appreciate about this book. And we find a lot of hopefulness for her and her future in this book, which I think is really nice to see. And personally, I, I did really appreciate the decap panel and seeing her physical self uh at the decap panel like just her live and putting a face to the name and like just seeing how she's doing was also kind of reassuring like even though it was clear like as she described the panel like things aren't like perfectly great with her right now like she mentioned like her liver is not doing great she it was clear like at several points like things were not too stable quite yet like she and she was still worrying about fan pressure like she did end on the note like she hoped fans didn't expect too much but it was still nice to see that she is she felt comfortable enough to show herself to fans and she's still making the effort to put herself out there to grow and to just continue the good fight on her quest to find happiness and again that's what i hope for her and again i'm just really interested in continuing to follow her work both her autobiography stuff and hopefully her fiction stuff absolutely i really want to thank erica too not just for like coming on and talking about more of nagata kabi's stuff with us but also giving us a head up ahead of time you know what kabi's next work is going to be like with uh, my wandering warrior existence coming from seven seas you know uh the, the warning ahead of time about like what it's going to deal with in terms of like sexual assault and whatnot because uh uh, and I'm sure Lum probably agrees. And I, I also don't want to like 100% hold Erica to anything just yet because anything could happen in like the next year. And, but I'm, I am going to say there's like a non-zero chance that we'll probably cover that at some point. And when and if we do, I don't think personally I would feel comfortable putting that kind of thing behind a paywall because it feels, if, if, it feels really weird and shitty to like make money off of a discussion about that kind of thing. So there's that. Well, I'd be glad to come back anytime. I absolutely adore you both and uh, enjoy our conversations immensely. Well, we adore you more. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Not that it's a contest. Um, (laughs) No, both of you now have to compete for my favor. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, But no, seriously, Erica, thank you so much for coming on and like giving us your time. Uh, it's, It's always my genuine, genuine pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess just to kind of end things off, I'm sure, you know, if, if there's anything you want to go ahead and plug before we head out, this is the time. Please go ahead. 
Um, I hope you're all getting Rose of Versailles. I've been working very hard on it. I have the, the final volume is in my inbox waiting to be looked at. Uh, so that's that's something that's super important to me. And uh, I don't know if I've been here since, but I do have a book coming out next summer, next Pride Month, mm-hmm. called uh, By Your Side, Hundred Years: The First 100 Years of Yuri Anime and Manga. And I'm working very hard at that. And we have a brand new cover that we commissioned from Rika Takashima. And the art is amazing, and I'm super excited about that. So as soon as we have that all finalized, like the cover art and everything all done, uh, hopefully in the autumn, we'll be starting our promotions, and you'll get to see cover reveals and stuff. So I'm really looking forward to that, and I hope you will all pick that up when you have a chance next summer, and we'll talk about it then, too. Absolutely. I'm excited to read it. Oh, Thank yeah, you. for sure. Thanks again to Erica for joining us to talk about my alcoholic escape from reality. And thank you to the Vance to her joining us for our conversation on my wandering warrior existence, which again, you'll hear as the next episode out next week or around that time frame. But before we head off on our conversation here, we of course want to leave you with some unique shout outs and further reading. And I want to start off just by promoting a lot of the stuff Erica has been doing recently because in this conversation of course this was recorded like a year ago erica's been up to a lot since then she's written a lot she's been doing a lot of cool stuff first off of course we just want to shout out her review of alcohol escape itself on okazu if you want kind of a more condensed streamlined collection of her talks on the book then definitely you should check out her review. And if you want to read more of her writing, obviously you should check out more of her stuff on Akazu. But she also did a special bonus essay for the Manga Explaining podcast for their newsletter. She wrote about the manga of Takako Shimura, very acclaimed mangaka, primarily for her LGBTQ work, like Sweet Blue Flowers and Wandering Sun, and especially her newest title, Even Though Our Adults. Erica tracks all of her LGBTQ manga. It explores what they do well, how they reflect kind of an evolving awareness from Shimura about LGBTQ teams and lives as depicted in her stories. And I think it's a very fantastic profile of Shimura's works. And what makes each of them interesting than the strengths and the weaknesses of each of them in different ways. But overall, a very, very great profile of the mangaka's very influential, very meaningful titles. Now, Erica has been doing a lot of videos, of course, on her Okazu YouTube channel or her personal YouTube channel, one of which was a celebration of her recent 20th anniversary for Yurikon. She did a special like live stream anniversary event a few months ago in which she and under presenters kind of gave like some presentations on the growth and development of Yuri manga. Erica's presentation was all about the development of Yuri as a term in the culture of manga communities in terms of publishing 
and how it really, you know, became defined. It was not originally like a publisher originated term. They originally kind of leaned towards towards girls' love, but really it was through an ongoing conversation with fans that the term Yuri has become more adopted and the default designation for titles that explore the love between girls and women. And we also got presentations from the translator of uh, Citrus in Germany, Verna Maser, kind of the Yuri culture in Germany and how that's developed and the publishing scene there has developed, as well as another presentation from uh, James Welker, who also explores Yuri fandoms like transnational permutations like Yuri culture as it's evolved and as it's been, you know, developed in different communities, in different uh, places, countries nationwide, and kind of going through a profile of like kind of different fan cultures and con scenes that celebrate Yuri and other LGBTQ manga and content. And so it's a really great collective presentation for the development of Yuri as a genre and it's spread globally and how it's seen, appreciated, enjoyed by fans worldwide. So a really fantastic presentation that explores it from an international and historical angle. Erica also recently had an interview with Ada Palmer, who is an author and also, you may know, as the founder of the Tesca in English website, kind of the premier fan site for Osama Tezuka's works. And Erica has a great conversation with Ada about the themes of her Terra Ignota series, which just recently published its fourth book last year, and kind of the influences she draws from in terms of sci-fi and history that she puts into the book and her worldview, and also talking about Osama Tezuka and his worldview, how it influences her own, and also like a really fantastic conversation of kind of how Tezuka employs sci-fi themes, his philosophical themes about the nature of humanity, and whether he's optimistic or pessimistic about human nature. And we also had a great conversation about revolutionary Goal Utena and kind of the themes in that story and what she took away from it as it's has been explored in the books, like a sp- specific character from Utena, you know, she was very inspired by and like put in her book. So that was like a great kind of insight into like the inspirations she has taken from like these series that have been really, really uh, influential on her as an author. And yeah, like, you know, Ada, of course, has just done a lot of great work in terms of promoting and profiling Osama Tezuka's works through the Tezkin English website. So it was really cool to listen to this interview with her about like her writing, about like her involvement in fandom, like how she got started with Tezuka and has worked closely with Tezuka Productions in terms of developing the website and stuff. So very, very awesome conversation with Ada. And of course, recently, and you'll hear her mention this in the Wandering Warrior discussion uh, plugs as well, but Erica did a roundtable. She moderated a roundtable with Michigan State University's uh, Japanese Pop Culture and Transmedia Workshop, which had a lot of, you know, presenters, uh, many of which that we know very well, including Zach Davison, Morimorimoto, Sarah Lindsley, as well as great localizers like Sarah Moo, Jennifer O'Donnell, Jennifer Sherman, Louise Yokoai, 
So it was a great panel of about like 10 folks just talking about their experiences in localization, how they got into localization, what they see as the future of localization, including, you know, from the angle of like how the business is changing and evolving, how like technology will either be a source of conflict or be an assistance to it. And just really interesting philosophies on the nature of localization and what they seek to do in their work. So a very fantastic roundtable, very fantastic conversation from some of the best localizers in the industry. And definitely a must listen if you are interested in just that diversity perspectives between translators, letterers, editors, just talking about the localization scene as it is. Now that does it for kind of the plugs I want to do for Erica's recent work and stuff more directly related to Alcoholic Escape. But I do have some other plugs I wanted to share with this episode that are in the nature of retrospectives on reflections. So starting off, I want to recommend Tanami Faithful Podcast recent huge 25th anniversary celebration podcast uh, for Tanami, where basically the entire TF crew is able to come on the podcast over the course of like a three plus hour long recording to just reminisce about their favorite Tanami memories, including of course Jose, the original founder of Tanami Faithful, and of course video editor for CNN and oftentimes producer, editor for Discotech. You know, he was able to come on. It's always great to hear from Jose when he's able to come on the show. It's great to have him on, of course, for the 25th anniversary celebration podcast of Tanami. But like so many people for Tanami Faithful podcasts, history, both past and present contributors were able to come on the show to just reminisce about their favorite Tanami memories and it was a really nice delight to listen to it. On terms of videos now that I want to recommend, Blue Nova recently did a great video looking back on the history of Gundam's female fandom. Basically, when female fans really got into Gundam, and really it was from the start, as Tomino himself would say, like, women have always been, like, kind of a driving force behind Gundam viewership from the original series. But especially focusing on when the franchise started really trying to court female viewers with Wing and Seed and Iron Butter Orphans, and, like, how that's kind of changed the direction of Gundam as a franchise in some ways. And it's really interesting to see, like... This retrospective on Gundam and its relationship with its female audiences and how it has kind of like affected the direction of the franchise and the shows and the conversation that they've been having with their audience, which is really cool. Bedhead Bernie also did a really great retrospective recently on the entirety of Beavis and Butthead. He basically went through the show season by season, placing it in its historical context and cultural context of like, here is the history behind the production of the show at this point in time. Here's how we can see like the growing pains of the show reflected in the series and the episodes. Here is like the development of the characters and how it tracks. And here's how the show is like reacting to both the culture it exists in of like originally it's like a counterculture thing for Mike Judge of like he's like criticizing the audience that the show is being shown to of like, you know, he had he wasn't the biggest fan of NTV and his content. So he was like, you know, through and Butthead satirizing the teen viewers of NTV at a time. But then those characters obviously would become embraced by them become like symbols and icons and so the show had an interesting evolution of like kind of dealing with how Beavis and Butthead were being perceived by the public in a way that it wasn't intended and how that affected the development of those characters. 
And in addition to tracking, you know, kind of the history of the production of the show and how the show itself actually changed, Bernie is able to make a really compelling character analysis of Beavis and Butthead. These characters we think is, you know, just simpletons. There actually is, through the evolution of the show, kind of more of a complexity to the characters and particularly in their relationship and how they affect each other, particularly how Butthead has influenced Beavis's behavior and what kind of person Beavis might be when output influence it's like an interesting point of conversation so i it was a really fantastic exploration of the development of the show how the show changed over the point it came out in and he leaves off on a pretty good note of like yeah i mean beavis and Putter was so much of its time so much of a conversation reaction to the culture of its time that what context can beavis and Butthead now like seek to serve like the revival season from 10 years ago was very well received it was well written good but it didn't catch on with viewers for a reason uh, in terms of like it wasn't these characters were of a particular time that made them appealing to that generation uh they evolved uh in terms of their complexity in terms of what the show was in response to like that culture at the time so like in terms of like with this new revival season what now can these characters like represent to appeal to a current generation which i think was such a really interesting conversation of like hey this was a thing that really came out because of its time and place it really is what it is because of the time place they came out in and the context they came out in and i think that's always a really interesting point of analysis to look at a piece of media through which is true of the next retrospective i want to share which was a fantastic video essay on project aiko kaiser bean's big 100 episode celebration for his kyoto video series and he really put out all the stops in terms of his research, in terms of like this messaging from putting it in the context, putting it in the context of, hey, anime localization, starting from Voltron, was produced under this philosophy of like, hey, we want to remove all the Japaneseness from these anime we're importing and trying to promote the Western audiences. But then here comes Project Eiko in the early 90s from Central Park, whose appeal was just so much in its Japanese. It's unabashedly Japanese because the movie is like so much a conversation, uh, a reaction with the other popular culture is inspired from in terms of like it is just a film just filled to the brim with not just references and parody, but it is like so much uh, a re- response to the tropes that these animators grew up with and were inspired by. It is so much about the nature of the anime manga fandom of its time and like what these animators were passionate about and interested in so it really was um, so much built in this japanese context of anime consumption that was super new to and unfamiliar to like western audiences that were getting introduced to it in the early 90s but nonetheless it was arguably one of the most essential uh, influential titles in terms of growing the anime fandom because it was so unabashedly Japanese in a way that Akira even though there's obvious like Japanese social commentary in Akira Akira also fit into like kind of the similar metrics similar aesthetics of serious quote-unquote like sci-fi arty films you know if you understood Blade Runner the aesthetics of Akira were not alienating to western audiences they weren't unfamiliar to western audiences when it was introduced so it was easy for it to get accepted by critical circles but, you know, Pachideko is just so much unafraidly, unashamedly anime and like a completely opposite dream in terms of its 
comedic exaggeration in terms of its zaniness so yeah like it was really interesting for him to put it in that context and of course like the history the background he gives on like the production of Aiko like it's how old the animators who came to the project, you know, they really got their start as like untrained newbies, like on Yurzi Yatsura, through Cream Lemon, and then just the development of that team until they got the chance, the opportunity to make something in Aiko, uh, just, you know, being given a chance on, and how he ties that into, well, yeah, Project Aiko is something that could not be existed today because they were those animators were given like just a lot more trust and less oversight than a modern production would be copyright laws in japan are much stricter than they would be back then so you know and he makes a really great point about like how this reflects on the changing state of the animation industry uh for the worse in terms of like animators being given less creative freedom uh, and also tighter deadlines more stretching thin of talent uh, not just in japan but also abroad we see like less trust given to animators what with like the new batman uh <laughs> series being you know helmed or by jj abrams of all people you know so i think he really comes to some really thoughtful points using project echo as a springboard for you not just exploring the series itself and what makes it like such an appealing uh, movie and of course the sequels evaluating the strengths and weaknesses of each you know but also, again, putting it in its context of like what it as a piece of media represents for the point in time it came out in and what it represents today, looking back on it in the climate of animation and anime we are in now and what makes it still so special under that lens. So very fantastic retrospective, just a wonderful way uh, to celebrate his 100th video of Kyoto video, which, you know, 100 videos strong is just fantastic research and thoughtful video essays on great anime projects and I'm looking forward to seeing him continue to continue forward with more great essays along this vein. And then finally the last shout I want to give is uh kind of on the same subject of like well Nagata Kabi got her start as like kind of a web comic artist like publishing her works on Bishop independently. Well now here's a chance for like new artists also to get noticed kind of online and get their work kind of just discovered just through online readership uh, and self-publishing. And that's through the Shrine Comics, you know, one-shot competition. Now we recorded an interview with Jinshan Shumai, the founder of Shrine Comics, a while ago and that episode is going to take a little bit longer to come out. But the submission period for the one-shot competition is over and they got a lot of entries. They got 65 one-shot entries, which is really awesome. And the voting for them is now open and it'll be open until April 7th, about like noon EST. So, yeah, I mean, they have comic entries and script entries for you to vote on. There's a lot of really cool, like, one-shots in both categories. So, I just wanted to shout out, you know, the one-shot competition and encourage people to go check out and read these and vote for your favorites. Because, of course, the winners of these competitions, you know, they're going to get some really good prizes. It definitely shows support to artists and one-shots. You thought, wow, we're really exceptional. And hey, this could be a really great starting point for a lot of these artists uh, on their careers. In the same way, Kabi, you know, just through self-publishing work on Pixiv and getting noticed, you know, really jump-started a career for her. So, yeah, I just wanted to share this because I think it's super awesome. And I'm really excited to see the results of it after going through the entry and yeah definitely definitely check it out 
And that will do it for the community shoutouts that we'll share on this episode. And that about wraps us up for the show. So now I think it's time for us to escape from the podcast back into our reality. But before we do that, I think we still have some plugs to share to let you know where you can find us in reality, or at least the online space that connects us to you through the medium of the internet. Yeah, let's let's escape our reality and wander into the existence that is uh, next week's podcast see what i did there uh so like we mentioned at the top of the show this whole episode was kind of a prelude to next week's episode where we are going to have erica friedman back on the show once again to talk about nagata kabi's next work that came out after this one my wandering warrior existence and yeah uh there's a newly recorded podcast uh, that will be coming out next week. And yeah, not only did we want to put this up as sort of a preview for our Patreon, but also as a precursor to that discussion, because, you know, context is important for a lot of Nagata Kabi's works, especially if you're going through them in order. So yes, look forward to that next week. It's always fun talking with Erica, and I can't wait for you guys to listen to our next conversation with her next week. But until then, uh, like Lum said, we're going to start plugging our stuff and letting you guys know where you can find us. And yeah, Lum, why don't we start with you? How could the people find you? You can find me at Lumriyasha on Twitter and Lumriyasha on a variety of places that I'm at. Animation Revelation, any list, letterbox, wherever there's a Lumriyasha that you can find me by that name. You can also read my manga reviews on mangarevs.com. we got a lot of books coming out, a lot of reviews going out. I wrote a review last year for my Akahawk Escape for Reality that I'm sure we'll share in the show notes. But I had, a, as you probably heard on the podcast, a lot of thoughts, a lot of feelings on it. And it's... Uh, the book's place in terms of development of Kabi's career and in terms of her own life as she chooses to share with us. So yeah, definitely check that out uh, for a read. And also hopefully we'll have more new reviews published soon on there. You can also find on mangaroos.com the other podcasts I do, Lum Squad, the Yours the Outs of Kipastas, that I do with my good friend Andreas Yushimura. We explore the wonderful wacky world of Rukutakashi's classic comedy sci-fi manga, Yours the We have a lot of fun going through his releases of the manga and catching up on those. And we're having fun and going through the movies under on Crunchyroll and available streaming by Discotech. So we're really, really excited to continue covering the series, and especially as the new anime is going to come out this year. There's just so much to talk about with Yuri right now and Takashi right now. So if you want more discussion on her work and on Yuri definitely check us out on Mongerizu.com, but also on Twitter at Squad and Tumblr, LumberSquarePod.com. YouTube, you can find our channel name by searching for it. And of course, we're on every podcast platform you can think of. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and of course, the Manga Mavericks Podcast, VV Publisher, our episodes in there as well. And also, early episodes are published on the Manga Arts Patreon if you want an extra incentive to donate to the Manga Arts Patreon. But... In addition to that, if you like the art I make for the show in terms of thumbnails and also the animation illustrations I make in general, you can find that on my Instagram at SidArtWorks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colty. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other podcasts uh, besides this one that you can listen to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. We're over there. If you click on the podcast page, you'll uh, basically find uh, whatever podcasts I'm doing at the moment, even podcasts that I'm not doing at the moment anymore, or uh, even all my guest spots that I've done over whatever period of time I've been podcasting. So yeah, basically, if you want to listen to any more podcasts that I'm on that I, and that I've done, uh, again, cultivecorner.wordpress.com. That's where you can find all my other podcasts. 
in terms of this podcast, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks at mangamavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. We're at the $2 tier. You can listen to select episodes of the podcast before we put them up on our main feed. Basically, if we happen to have them edited before we're ready to put them up on our main feed, we'll put them up on our Patreon first. Actually, right now, uh, we forgot to mention this. Uh, you can listen to our discussion of my wandering warrior existence right now before it's even up on our main feed. So if you really want to listen to the next episode of the podcast, it is up on our Patreon at patreon.com slash So please, 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 please go listen to that uh, if you want to listen to it that early. But admittedly, though, the $2 tier and how much we release on that tier really depends on like what we have ready at any given moment. So... Uh, really, if you want more reliable content, you should sign up for our $5 tier, where over there, you'll get a new bonus podcast guaranteed at the end of every month. Uh, right now, you can listen to our latest uh, podcast going over our Manga Mavericks podcast survey. Uh, that's right. If you're, uh, if you're interested in what kind of feedback we got on our latest survey, you should really go listen to that podcast. Uh, we basically go over uh, all of our listeners, like, you know, favorite podcast guests, favorite segments of the show. Uh, their favorite series that they read over the year. Um, basically, whatever feedback we got, we uh, we go over there. And I think we got a lot of interesting feedback from our last uh, survey. Again, that's available along with so much more that you can listen to over at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, it's really the best place for you guys to support us. It helps us keep the lights on in terms of like podcast and website hosting. And also it helps us in terms of, uh, you know, emergency repairs, like I've mentioned over the past episode or two. So again, really helps when you guys, uh, you know, sign up for our Patreon. It really means the world to us. Once again, that's at patreon.com slash Please uh, sign up if you can. Um, but as for everything else, you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks, uh, where we upload different excerpts of the podcast, including some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Please subscribe. Uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Do you have any thoughts on uh, any of Nagatakabi's works? Do you have any thoughts on um, whatever's going on in the manga industry right now? I don't know. Uh, what are you reading right now that maybe you want us to talk about on the show and you want to hear our thoughts on? Again, email us anything about manga or the podcast. If you send us an email, we'll read it. We love getting your guys' emails. So again, that's at manga mavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different platforms at this point, uh, but especially on Apple Podcasts and even Spotify. Uh, if you leave us a rating and a review, you know, it really helps the visibility of our show. And also, whatever feedback you guys give us, positive or negative, uh, we want to use that and uh, make the show that much better because we really do take your guys' feedback super seriously and appreciate every single bit that you give us. Um, but that, I think, is going to be about it for this episode. Again, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Manga Mavericks Podcast. This has been episode 194, and we'll see you guys next time for episode 195. Bye, guys. Sayonara! Sayonara!